First Kings this evening and our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, cover a little bit more ground on Sunday evenings. And there are men coming up the aisles right now, and they'd love to give you a Bible if you just get their attention so that you can follow along with us this evening. Solomon, uh, and when we come to First Kings, we're coming uh, in the early chapters, we'll see this evening, uh, to the end of King David's reign and his place in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, David's son by the name of Solomon came to the throne in 971 B.C. And I think as we try to, at least it's helpful for me as I try to think about, okay, where was Isaiah and where was David and how far back was Abraham and time-wise and all. Jesus is easy for us because the calendar does the work for us. His his ministry was 2,000 years ago. And uh, so... More or less, David, I think it's handy to remember, uh, ministered and served for the Lord a thousand years B.C. before Christ. And so it gives you an idea of kind of the distance of the events and and uh, how much time uh, occurred before these kind of major places in in uh, uh, the history of God's people in the Bible. First and second Kings in the Jewish Bible, they're all one book. Uh, and I think it was when the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures came uh, into being. It was broken into two books in order to make it more manageable. But it's basically a continuation of the historical account, account of Israel from Second uh, Samuel. And first and second Kings just continues through Israel's history. It covers a period of about 400 years. It takes us from the tail end of David's reign on into Solomon's reign, uh, all the way into the division of the nation of Israel into a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, during the reign of Jeroboam, who was Solomon's son, that split that occurred. And then ultimately, the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity to the Assyrians because of their apostasy and their rebellion against God. And then the southern kingdom of Judah sometime later uh, also went into captivity, but this time to the Babylonians uh, for the same reasons. This is really, though, the book a lot more than just kind of, uh, you know, mere history. It's one of my favorite sections of the scriptures because God's truths are clothed in these men and women that are so easy to relate to. And so the spiritual truths that are found And these chapters are just absolutely priceless. And one of the great lessons is the terrible consequences of rebelling against uh, God as as a child of God, uh, engaging in apostasy or turning away from him. The terrible consequences that Israel paid uh, as a nation and they paid individually as well uh, for that apostasy. And that's a great warning that uh, we need to hear uh, even today. But the book also speaks of the sovereignty of God, and that is the almightiness of God, that despite the failure of God's people, uh, God, uh, when we are faithless, the Bible says God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so he had raised up Israel for a purpose because of their failure. Uh, He knew how to chasten them and bring them to a place of repentance, but he never abandoned his call and his purposes upon them uh, as his people. There's a lot of uh, Bible characters that we're going to get uh, introduced to 
in First and Second Kings and uh, good kings and good prophets who really made a difference for God while the nation that they were involved in was gradually uh, collapsing into moral decline and was going to ultimately be taken over by other nations. So we're going to learn about kings uh, like Hezekiah, King uh, Josiah, some of the greatest men uh, who ever served God in the whole Bible. We're going to learn about prophets like uh, Isaiah and uh, Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, but um, uh, Elijah and Elisha. So these books help us to understand who they are, their ministries, what they tried to do, even though they were unsuccessful in turning around uh, the ultimate collapse of, of Israel as a nation, uh, the important part that they played in delaying that. We're told in chapter 1, verse 1, now David was old. We know from elsewhere where we'll get this evening that David is 70 years old at this point in time. So don't blame me. God's calling you old if you're 70 here uh, tonight. David was old and he was advanced in years. And they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. Uh, the Bible, like the, King, the old King James, it says he was stricken in years. And I don't know if you've ever been stricken by something, but the years will beat you up. And uh, David was beaten up. He lived a long time. Seventy was a long time to live in those days. We get used to people living to 70 and well beyond today. And we're thankful for that. But 70 was a long life in that, in that ancient world. And so he'd been put through a lot. His body had been through a lot. Physically, you think about the hardship of his early life. Those, uh, being a shepherd boy, the 10 years that he spent fleeing Saul in the, in the wilderness and the hardship of it and the hunger and the coldness and all of these uh, kinds of things. You think about all the battles that he went through. We read about the battles, yes. Mm-hmm, uh-huh. If you see anything like me in the, your devotional life, you've got a cup of tea in your hand and a nice, very soft chair, and you're reading about his, one defeat after another of all the enemies. Is another thing to lead into battle. David didn't like send the people in. He was a, until he was a liability that he was going to get killed out in the battlefield. He led them out into the battle. It'd be like ten times more. Some of you are ex, you know, you are veterans. And uh, more than going out and playing in the NFL Sunday after Sunday. I mean, you're just going to, after a while, you're going to get nicked up and you're going to get dinged up. And so David had really put his body through a lot. You think about what he'd been through, not only physically, but emotionally. All of the pressures. I can't even imagine. Maybe some of you can Imagine the pressures of leading the nation of Israel, as well as then conquering the surrounding nations and uh, then leading these groups of people who were traditionally hostile to Israel and keeping them in line. I think emotionally in terms of of the how it taxed his his body and aged him, the guilt of his own sin. His Adultery with Bathsheba and and then the arranged murder of Uriah the Hittite. And then the pain and the heartbreak uh, of the rebellion and sin of his own children, Amnon, his sons, rape of David's daughter Tamar. I don't know. I mean, you go process that with the Lord. And you keep on going because you have to keep on going. But that takes a piece out of you, big piece out of your life emotionally. 
And then there was the revolt and the betrayal by Absalom as he attempted to overthrow his father and destroy him. Then on top of that, after David had given his whole life really to the service of that nation to realize how quickly the nation of Israel turned from him and joined happily joined Absalom in the rebellion against him. I mean, you just you just got to think, what what am I doing wasting my life like this for a group of people? I've served them sacrificially for decades and God has used me to make the nation great and them great and prosperous. And this is what I get. The emotional consequences of being surrounded by men like Joab, Joab's defiance of David for long years. And then on top of that, he faced everything else in life that all of us face in life. Those kinds of emotional pressures and mental pressures will age a person every bit as fast as physical hardship will. And so now he's experiencing a very rapid physical deterioration. His body's tired. He's asked a lot of it. It has done a lot for him. But now it's beginning to fail him. Think about Moses. Moses went to be with the Lord at 120. What vitamin regimen was he taking? He wasn't taking any. He was taking Vitavigivetamac or whatever Lucy said. Some Wild West concoction or something. No. The Bible says the Lord numbers our days. And so David was to go home to be with the Lord at 70. Moses was to go home to be with the Lord at 120. You say David got ripped off. I don't agree. Now, Moses, probably not good to compare the two because they both lived for God and they ran hard and they served God hard. But there are people in the world that live 100 years and they never live life. They don't live one lifetime, that 100 years. Then you get someone like David who lives 10 lifetimes in 70 years. I've told my wife and I've told others, uh, too, if I were to just drop dead tomorrow and you're going to have a service for me, uh, don't feel sorry for me. Say, wow, it's too bad. Fifty five. He died so young. Don't do it. As God is my witness, I've lived three lifetimes as a Christian. It's the richest life, the best life, the highs, the lows, everything in between. I mean, you do not get bored walking with God and serving God. And I, and I have legitimately lived three lifetimes and enjoyed it walking with the Lord. And so the Lord numbers our days for David. It was 70 years old. Now, his body is he's unable to generate enough heat to stay warm naturally. And in Jerusalem, the winters are like they are here. Uh, they, they're very cold. They can be very damp, a lot of rain, and it's uh, known to even snow at times in Jerusalem. It's an elevated kind of, uh, of a place. And so his circulation appears to be getting uh, bad. And no amount, they're putting animal skins on them, they're putting blankets, they're putting furs upon them. They, they pile them as high as they can on him, and he can't stop being cold, he can't stop shivering. Now, you young people, you don't know anything about this. And I don't envy you. God bless you. You enjoy that. All that warm blood that goes to every part of your body and your extremities, you enjoy that time in life. But for those of you who know what it's like to get cold like this as you get older, I mean, it's a miserable place to be. Not just words on a page. He, in the winter, 
goes to bed and all night he cannot get warm. He shakes all night long. His body cannot generate heat. See, the problem with just piling blankets on somebody is blankets don't generate heat. All they can do is hold the heat you're generating. He can't generate any heat to even begin with. And so this is the condition that, uh, that he's in. And in those days, of course, there's no central heat or uh, electric blankets or thermal blankets, nothing like that. And so David is, is now limited pretty largely to his bedchamber. Life gets smaller as we get older and uh, probably largely bedridden at this point. And so he's frail, dependent on the help of everyone else and is literally uh, a lion in winter, a great man at the end of a great life. You see, I, wish, I, I could wish that I didn't uh, have to see David in this condition. I'd rather see him with a sling, killing Goliath, or in wielding the sword in, in battle and all. But it doesn't matter. Every single one of us descendants of Adam and Eve, we come to this place in life. And so David couldn't escape it, and he gives us hope for uh, as we hit that season in life, too. So this is his condition that he's in. And so here's the solution his servants came up with. His servants said to him, let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord, the king, and let her stand before the king and let her care for him and let her lie in your bosom while you're in bed, that our Lord, the king, may be warm. And so they said, let's find these blankets aren't doing any good. Let's find something that can generate some heat to lie close to you at night. And, of course, a, uh, a young woman is uh, outstanding for that, I suppose. I mean, I, well, of course. I was once married to a young woman, and she's really... But she's, no, she's, she's young. Uh... <laughs> Does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> This is a lose-lose here, isn't it? I was thinking when our kids had grandchildren, I remember on a Sunday morning, I said, the weirdest thing about being a grandparent is realizing I'm married to a granny. <laughs> so, you know, all this stuff comes. But anyway, enough about, enough about this uh, just silliness that we can all forget and just leave right in this room tonight. But... So here's the blood flow and young and, and that kind of a body would be ideal for generating heat. So really the ancient form of an electric blanket. Now, um, now you might wonder, as, as I do, uh, why in the world one of David's existing wives couldn't be used for this? And, uh, and there is a distinct possibility uh, that they being older now as well were having trouble generating heat themselves. And so they might not be of much uh, use in all of that. What a crowd we have here tonight, Lord. <laughs> I'm not saying it's my best explanation for it. I'm just saying it's a possibility. I'm inclined to believe that David just didn't need the aggravation. And this, I mean, a sanctified aggravation. How's he going to pick one of these wives? Over the others and 
bring her in and, and all of this. And because he had multiple wives, there's, there's consequences to that. So there would be complications. There would be competitiveness now in, in all of that. And additionally, each any one of them would have brought a history with them, children and problems and requests and and wanting to talk about things all the time and stuff like that. And so uh, Abishag, uh, who's going to be chosen for this, she, he didn't have to think about anything with her. He has no history with her in, in that that way. So there, there's no complications of relationship. She's just going to be an attendant to him and really nothing more. I think that uh, additionally also that it isn't unlikely that uh, David might not have wanted his very obvious physical deterioration at this point in his life uh, to be seen any more than necessary by his generals or by his men that he had served with through the years or even by his wives. And uh, so. Uh, maybe a man who prized his privacy uh, related to these things. Uh, we don't know, uh, but we could surely understand that if that were the case. And so a search was made and uh, they sought for a lovely woman throughout uh, all the territory of Israel. If you're going to get an electric blanket, you might as well get a pretty one. You don't go to Best Buy or to Bed Bath and Beyond and get an ugly electric blanket. So they looked and, and uh, for a lovely woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the young woman was very, very lovely. She cared for the king, served him, but the king did not know her. That is, he did not have sexual relationships with her. He, she was a personal nurse to him, and there was nothing sexual about the relationship uh, at, at all. No intimacy involved. And then here, uh, when things as if things couldn't get worse for an old man whose life has really been filled with just immense uh, personal tragedy and heartache. Um, all of a sudden they do because a child is now going to rise up and make David's final days absolutely miserable uh, through his selfish actions. A, a son by the name of Adonijah, who we pick up in verse five. And then Adonijah, the son uh, of Haggith, he exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He was the fourth son of David. He was probably at this time the oldest surviving son. And thus he automatically considers himself to be the next king of, of Israel. Uh, we know that his older brothers Amnon and uh, Absalom have both died of, uh, violent deaths. There was a brother that was older him, than him by the name of Chiliab who was listed in Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, but was never mentioned again. So it's assumed that he died uh, early because he's never mentioned again. And so here is Adonijah, uh, kind of the oldest, and he assumes that he's going to be the king, and he's not going to wait for David to make him the king. He's going to exalt himself. So it tells us Adonijah, the son, son of Haggith, he exalted himself. So here we have uh, selfish ambition, self-exaltation. Nothing wrong in the Bible with uh, godly ambition. God give us men and women who are ambitious for the things of God and the kingdom of God in the world. What the Bible condemns is selfish or self-centered um, uh, ambition and also uh, self-exaltation. 
And so he's determined now to be uh, the king of Israel. He's the brother of Absalom uh, and uh, who was led that rebellion is now dead. He shared the same mother uh, with David as their father. And so he now takes advantage of his father's, you know, uh, failing physical condition uh, to promote himself as the king. And he thinks David is too old uh, to be able to resist him. And so it's just terrible. He's. He's just the worst uh, kind of child. And uh, everything we learn in life, we don't always learn from good examples. We learn from things that we see that kind of turn our stomach a little bit. And we say to ourselves, I never want uh, to be that. Sometimes you can be raised in a home and you say, boy, this thing, this, my, how I was raised as a child is just, it works against me all the time. Now, sometimes you get raised in a home it's not that fun to be raised in and you come out of it more determined to never be like that uh, the rest of your life. And it's a good lesson that's learned. And so this guy is just an ugly kind of uh, human being. And he, he sees his father's vulnerable. And now he's going to use this time of vulnerability rather than being a support to his dad and all. He's going to take charge and try and get the whole kingdom uh, for uh, for himself. The Bible says, and it's, uh, I love this verse on this particular subject, uh, Psalm 75, verse 6, For promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But the promotion comes, the Bible says, from the Lord. If he doesn't promote us, you don't want to be promoted. I don't want to promote myself into any place he hasn't promoted me into because now I got to hold my own in that place and my own natural resources and it'll kill me. It'll kill you, too. Philippians chapter two, verse three says that nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Jesus said, as he gave the uh, example of the parable of the ambitious guest, the guy who didn't take the lowest table at the feast, but he sat up on the highest table at the feast. And the and the man that was giving the feast said, what are you doing sitting in the best seat? And he had him go sit in the low seat. And he found someone sitting in the low seat and brought him up here. And Jesus declared that whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You say, Pastor, you're wasting my time. I'm not wasting your time. I've been a Christian and walked with the Lord since 1980. And I've served the Lord virtually from day one. And I have watched Christians in churches and in Christian organizations, all kinds of things. I have watched them fight selfish ambition in their heart, self-exaltation, trying to get a particular position and the whole drama that goes on with it. And they end up getting that position by carnality or hook or crook. And all you have to do is just set the stopwatch. And God's word, when, when uh, Jesus declares that if we exalt ourselves, we will end up abased. But if we humble ourselves, we'll be exalted. His reputation is tied up with making that true in his kingdom. I have never failed to see someone who exalted themselves for fleshly reasons, not end up ultimately 
greatly abased and humbled. And so it's true. And that's what's going to happen to Adonijah. So we look at our hearts here tonight. I don't know what everybody's doing all through the week. I don't know what ministries everybody's involved in. I don't know what kind of heart any of us have toward what we would do to unseat someone or hear that. I don't know. Lots of people don't even go to this church except on Sunday nights. Selfish ambition is very dangerous. Without exception, it ends up in us being greatly humbled and God will make sure of it. I have never seen it not happen in my years of walking with the Lord. And so this is what his motivation was. And so he said, I will be king. And so he began to present himself by preparing for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. And uh, uh, and all of these are marks of a king. So he never went anywhere without a big entourage. And he's what he's doing is he's conditioning the people to think of him as the king. So it's just a quiet manipulation that he's doing. Now, when we look at verse um, uh, five there with the horsemen and the chariots and the horses and the 50 men running before him and all is the same thing as we say. We've been there, done that. It's the same thing that his brother Absalom did when he tried to take over the kingdom. And then we're told concerning Adonijah that his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? So here's a boy that has grown into adult life. And not only has he never had a whooping from his father, not only has he not been disciplined and chastened for his wrongdoing, David never rebuked him one time in his whole life. And, and this great failure, again, in David's life related to his children, his failure to discipline them. And again, it always makes us wonder and it always warns us. We wonder, why didn't David chasten and discipline his children? Maybe it was guilt over his own sin that kept him from then dealing with sin in the lives of his sons. But whatever the case was, it was a great failure on on David's part, the Bible says that we're to train up a child in, in the way that he should go. We should raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's what we're called to do as parents. And God bless you as you're doing that with with your with your children. So this guy's got a double whammy working against him. Really, his father, the king, has never, ever even rebuked him, never said, why have you done so even once in his life? And then we're told, number two, he was very good looking. His mother had born him after Absalom. So Absalom and Adonijah were very, very good looking young men. I don't know that there isn't a greater recipe for self-destruction in the world in any time in human history than for a young man or a young woman to be very good looking and completely undisciplined. That human being is headed for self-destruction. You see it all the time. All the, I mean, I, I don't read the tabloids or anything like that, but you see just the self-destruction of these beautiful people, whether it's Hollywood or entertainers or these different things. And you just you can look at people that are just whether they're male or female and they are just extraordinarily beautiful people. I pity them. 
I pity them for the temptations that are going to come their way that doesn't come to the rest of us in life. And then if you couple that with the inability or the the lack of self-control and discipline to be built in by a parent, I just my heart breaks for them. Of course, they're going to be destroyed in this world. Now, here's the hope in all of it. There's a heavenly father who will come into our lives when we're born again by putting our faith in Christ. And that father will discipline us. And that father will give us the character to be able to handle what, however he's blessed us physically or mentally or emotionally in life. But he's the only one that can keep us safe. We need to be born again. If you're not born again here tonight, you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you need to do that tonight because you're just set up for destruction apart from it. And so here he is, good-looking guy and, uh, and, and no real discipline or character built into his life. And so he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and they helped Adonijah. And so he begins to consult and pull powerful people into his reign. Joab was a military commander. Abiathar was the priest, a spiritual leader. And so he's starting to pull in uh, allies, military allies, religious allies. These are men that have long histories with David. And so when people would learn that, oh, Joab is with Adonijah and Abiathar is with Adonijah, it gave a weight to Adonijah's claim to, to be king that he wouldn't otherwise have. Sometime back, the word gravitas was being thrown around in the press like crazy a few years ago. But that's the kind of of thing. By having these two men kind of in his cabinet as in supporters, it gave kind of a gravity. It gave kind of a seriousness to him being the king that he wouldn't have otherwise had. They should have said no. And he might not have even got his effort off the ground. And they're going to pay a price for for joining up with him. And then, but Zadok the priest and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Rhea, and the mighty men who belonged with David, they were not with Adonijah, so they wouldn't unite with him. Apparently his, his aspirations were well known. And Adonijah, now he just carefully sets the stage for taking control of the nation here, and he sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle uh, by the stone of uh, Zoheleth, which is by Enrogel, about half a mile outside of Jerusalem, so it was out of eyesight. He invited all of his brothers, uh, the king's sons, all of the men of Judah, prominent men, the king's servants, uh, to come and uh, hear him promote himself as king, pronounce himself as king. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the mighty men, uh, or Solomon, his brother. So he looks at all these guys and says, they're a bunch of righteous guys. They're loyal to David and all of this, so I can't invite them. Any, any plan that you and I have for service under the Lord that you can't invite Benaiah or Nathan the prophet or Solomon to know about, then that's a plan we shouldn't be engaged in. The Bible says if we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we'll have fellowship one with another. 
This is all sneaky stuff going on. Just ugly politics at its worst. And, and he's, he's just doing this whole uh, game. And he's very, very good at it. And so Nathan the prophet, he learned of everything that was going on here and recognized the danger of it. And so he went to Bathsheba, who was the mother of Solomon. And he uh, saying to her, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David, our Lord, doesn't know anything uh, about it. So he lets her know about the conspiracy that's going on. She's probably unaware of it. And he lets her know this is a done deal. If we wait even a day, uh, he's going to be the king and everything is, is going to be lost. So Nathan comes to her. Uh, we're told that uh, here uh, in uh, as he comes there in verse 11, he is a prophet. Maybe the Lord had sent him to do it, uh, do this as a result. So he informs her. And here's his plan, his counsel for how to deal with this. He said, come, please let me now uh, give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. Uh, he knew that if Adonijah became king, he'd do a purge of all the other sons that he felt were a threat to him and would probably end up being the death of Solomon and also of Bathsheba. And, and it tells us when in verse 10, when he declines to invite Solomon uh, to be a part of his party, to become the king, that he probably realized what both David and Bathsheba knew and others knew also. And that is that David, uh, that Solomon was called by God to be the next king. So Adonijah now is not only rebelling against David, he is rebelling against God. God had determined that Solomon would be the next king. And I don't care what allies you get, I don't care... How much power you get, I don't know how big of an entourage you get and your posse and the whole thing. If God has determined that someone else is to be in that place, he knows how to get you out of that place to get that person in there. Has no hope of being successful. And so this is what he's up against and this is what he's trying to do. And so the plan is go in, uh, 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 come and let me give you Advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately. Don't lose any time to King David. Go into him in his bedchamber and say to him, did you not, my Lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Remind him of his promise and then ask, why then has Adonijah become king? And then while you're talking there with the king, I'll also come in after you and I'll confirm your words in case David thinks that you're exaggerating the seriousness of the situation. I'll come in and confirm that it's just as serious as you've presented it. And so Bathsheba went into the chamber to the king. King was very old and Abishag the Shumanite was serving the king. And Bathsheba entered the room. She bowed and uh, did homage to the king. And so that was a, a symbol that she had a request of the king. And so the king acknowledged her and said, what is your wish? And she said to him, my Lord, you swore by the Lord, your God, to my maidservant, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. And so now look, Adonijah has become king. And now, my Lord, the king, you do not know about it. 
He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance. He's invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. So David's pretty elderly, and he hasn't made it clear to the nation Who is going to follow him? He already knows it's Solomon because God has commanded it to be so. So he hasn't communicated it broadly. Probably a little neglectful on his part not to get this thing going and leaving this power vacuum because of his uh, failing health. And, And so she tells him this is not only a concern for Solomon and myself, but the whole nation is getting these mixed signals of who's going to be the next king. They need you to step up and and appoint and make clear who you have chosen to be the, the next king. Otherwise, it will happen when my lord, the king, rests with his fathers uh, that I and my and my son Solomon will be counted as, as offenders and, and likely uh, done away with. And just then, as she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. And so they told the king, saying, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, O my lord, O king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priests. And look, they're eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, uh, me, your servant, nor Zadok, the priest, nor Benaiah, uh, the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. So this is what we're up against. This is who he's invited, who he's left out. You see what's going on here, David. Has this thing been done by my lord, the king? Is this going on with your approval? And you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord and king after him. And then David answered and said, call Bathsheba into me. And so when uh, Nathan had come into the room, Bathsheba had exited the room so David could have privacy with Nathan. Bathsheba's called back into the room. And so she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and he said, as the Lord lives and, and does the Lord live? Yes. How long does he live? Forever. So you couldn't give like a stronger oath for the, the truthfulness and the surety of what you're about to uh, pronounce. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress. And what David is basically saying is, um, God, God is the one who has made me. Everything I have, I owe to him. Everything I have belongs to him. This role, this place that I play as as a king in the position in the history of God's people, God gave that to me. That's not mine to give to somebody else. That's God's responsibility and his privilege to fill that role. And so this he's redeemed my life from every distress. He can do what he wants with my life. He can do what he wants with his kingdom, just as I swore to you. Back in when Solomon was just a baby by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son shall be king after me. 
and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do. And then these would have been good words this day. I'm going to keep the promise. Doesn't matter what uh, Adonijah uh, has uh, has up his sleeve here. And then Bathsheba's response here. She bowed her face to the earth and she paid homage to the king. And she said, let my Lord David, uh, my Lord, King David, live forever. And so just may you be blessed for your righteous decision here. And King David said, call to me Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet. Uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. So they came in before the king and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon, which was a spring. Now, all people, common people rode on asses all of the time. Uh, but in those days, in that part of the world, kings rode uh, on mules and so, and there was a mule that was David's mule. Everybody would have known this is the king's mule. So when Solomon goes out before the people and he's riding David's mule, it's a recognition David has made him king. So he said, put my boy on, uh, on my mule and take him down to Gihon, the spring. Gihon was the main water source for Jerusalem. So what David's got is he doesn't, he hasn't had all this time that Adonijah's had of chariots and 50 men running before him and doing this big promotion campaign for himself as king before the nation of uh, before the people in Jerusalem. He's got a little shorter time to uh, gather a, a crowd in order to announce to them that Solomon is going to be king. So he said, take Solomon, put him on my uh, on my uh, uh, animal here and then go down the streets of Jerusalem to the spring guy home. Anybody that was looking out their windows and they saw Solomon sitting on the king's mule, they would have come out the door and followed. Something big is up here. Now, the, this, the greatest place in the city that you would ever, that you could find a ready-made crowd in the ancient world was the water source for the city. So David knew there's going to be a large crowd there at that place uh, any time of the day. And uh, so go down there and we'll proclaim Solomon king in that place. And therefore, let Zadok, the priest and Nathan, the prophet, anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the horn and say, long live King Solomon. And then you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. That means so be it or that's the truth. They're excited about Solomon being king. So they 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 liked uh, what they saw in that uh, young boy. Uh, and he really was a young man. He's probably somewhere between he's about 16, 17 years old at this point in time. And uh, he needed wisdom way beyond his years to be successful as a king. And God gave it to him. Well, we've got plenty of time to get into that as we go through the account. So they said, Amen. May the Lord God of our Lord, the king, say so too. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. We've been prospered under you, King David. Now, may he be even greater. And David wasn't threatened by that uh, one bit. And so Zadok, the priest. Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, that was David's 
foreign secret service that protected David's life while he was king. And uh, now they're assigned to Solomon. In the ancient world, they they would never choose bodyguards for the king from the native population. They were too easy to corrupt. You'd bring very valiant men from other nations, take good care of them, and they would be loyal to you. And so that's how it worked. And David had that kind of a, a secret service force that protected his life. It now transfers then to uh, Solomon. So they took him to Gihon, and Zadok the priest took a horn of oil, symbol of the Holy Spirit, uh, from the tabernacle. He poured it on Solomon, and so this oil is falling all over him, recognizing that he would need the Holy Spirit to be successful as king. They then blew the horn, the shofar, and all of the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him and the people played with flutes and rejoiced with great joy. They're so happy uh, over Solomon, over Adonijah. And uh, so they rejoiced and they played the flutes and they did with great joy to such a degree that the earth seemed to split with their sounds. It was just earth splitting the celebration that broke out. David has let us know who is going to be our next king, and it's Solomon. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, at the little, you know, shindig, uh, the party he's having out there at Enrogel, about a half mile outside of the city, Adonijah and all the guests who were with him, they heard this earth-splitting joy and uh, just as they had finished eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the horn, and Joab knew, hey, wait a second, that's what's going on. He, He said, why is the city in such a noisy uproar? What in the world is happening there? And while he was still speaking, there came uh, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest. And Adonijah said to him, come in, for you are a prominent man and you are going to bring us good news. And Jonathan answered and he said to King Adonijah, no, our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. You're going to hear that in your sleep tonight, aren't you? The Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they've made him ride on the king's mule. And so Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. They've gone up there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. That's the noise you're hearing. Also, Solomon now sits on the throne of the kingdom. Uh, Late breaking news. He is the next king of Israel while you're having a barbecue out here. And moreover, the king's servants have gone to bless our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and may he make his throne greater than your throne. May the prosperity of Israel and influence of it continue to enlarge under your son. And then the king bowed himself on the bed. And also the king said thus, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has given one to sit on my throne this day while my eyes see it. And so all the guests with Adonijah were afraid and they arose and each one went his way, beginning with Joab and Abiathar. They realized we're on the wrong side of this power struggle 
And and so they run for their treasonous lives uh, at this particular point. So so much for loyalty to Adonijah. Everyone is now trying to save their own skin. Now, Adonijah was afraid of Solomon for good reason. And so he arose, he went in and he took hold of the uh, horns of the altar. Now, what that's talking about is the altar where the sacrifices were made under the old covenant at the corner of, of the altar, each of the four corners, there was a large horn that was there. And according to the law of Moses, if you had um, accidentally uh, killed somebody by way of manslaughter, you didn't mean to kill him. It wasn't cold blooded murder. Uh, you would run to the tabernacle and you would grab a hold of the horn of the altar and it would be basically say be communicating uh, something terrible has happened, but I am innocent of the charges and I want you to be careful to know the facts about the situation before you kill me. So he's declaring his innocence that he's been misunderstood uh, here in doing this. And it was essentially a cry for grace, a cry for mercy. It was told Solomon, saying, indeed, King Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, for look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And uh, so this was the uh, agreement he was wanting from Solomon. He knew he was deserving of death for what he had done, and he's, he's wanting a guarantee that he won't be put to death uh, for his his treason and Solomon extends grace to him. He didn't need to could have uh, could have uh, had him executed. But he said, if he, my brother, proves himself a worthy man, in other words, he's going to be a loyal citizen like everybody else and loyal to me being king, um, then not one hair of him shall fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. If he continues to uh, attempt to secure the crown, uh, then he will be executed. So he's giving him some space to prove whether he is a good man or he is a bad man. He is a bad man, and it's going to cost him his life, but not tonight. So Solomon sent them to bring him from the altar, and he came. He fell down uh, humbly before uh, King Solomon. You exalt yourself, you're going to be abased, and it's going to even be a worse abasement for him because he's going to end up dead. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. In other words, you're a civilian. You're not in government work. Stay out of the government. Stay out of my reign. Just go be a common citizen, and that's where life is going to be found for you. And so fairly warned to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And he's not going to take any of this seriously next week. If the Lord tarries, we'll head in to the next chapter and, and he'll make a play uh, for the throne and, and he will ultimately uh, die uh, as a result of that. Well, I had planned on getting to uh, David's uh, death this evening. Not that I was eager to do so, but it just seemed like a nice breaks, breaking uh, uh, point, but um, uh, Matt prayed so long in starting the service that I ran out of time, and uh, so uh, we'll stop there this evening and we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper tonight.